Welcome to the Global Good Podcast, where each week we'll travel around the globe meeting the most incredible people doing the work that's truly making the world a better place. From the peaks of the Himalayas to leagues under the sea, join us as we embark on adventure for good. Hello, everyone. This is Nicole Roberts, your adventure guide. Just kidding. But this week, we are going on quite a trip around the world. Before we do that, I want to take us back to Mexico, where we were last episode, for a quick clarification. In that interview with Maria, I asked if her mother's brain was the first domestic violence-based brain that has been diagnosed with CTE. While it wasn't the first ever brain assessed for CTE after suffering from domestic violence, it was the first brain tested and confirmed by Dr. Anne McKee, the neuropathologist famous for her work diagnosing brain injury and CTE in NFL players. And I want to apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. We had some studio equipment issues that just took time to fix, so thank you for being patient with us. Last thing... A special, special thank you to Tyler Wyckoff, who has joined our team to assist with research and writing. He has been amazing, and you can thank him for today's episode. So we're back for a diversion episode. If you're new to the show, every other week we pause where we are on our travels for good around the world. We think it's important to take the opportunity to stop and notice the little things we might otherwise miss. Those quirks in history, sayings, or traditions that connect us all. Those quote-unquote little things often really have big lessons for us to learn. On The Last Diversion, we recognized how past generations fell prey to misinformation and disunity that surrounded the narrative about tuberculosis and library books. Go listen if you haven't. It gives us some very interesting insights to what we've been seeing during the COVID pandemic. We noted that despite advancements in technology and understanding of disease transmission, Groupthink and misinformation can still be just as harmful to our ability to come together, to ward off disease, and unfortunately, we still have a lot of room to learn from and grow beyond past generations. On this week's diversion, we're shifting gears and looking at something a lot of countries around the world share this time of year. Elections. Don't worry, we won't be talking about political parties or politics. We're going to be exploring how the world votes and how people's voices get heard. For our American listeners, and potentially for some others around the world, you know that the U.S. has had a tumultuous couple of years, to say the least, with voting, much of which is due to those same problems discussed in our last diversion, misinformation, misplaced blame, and powerful groups not yet motivated enough to step in and make significant change. Amidst all that noise, another round of elections were just held across the country, including municipal elections for school boards, city councils, mayors, and even statewide elections for positions like governor. And while attention is often paid to higher-level positions at the federal level, it could be argued that local elections, 
in every community around the world are more important. In many countries around the world, it's election time. In fact, in the months of October, November, and December, 16 countries hold elections at some level. With that in mind, let's dive into some interesting and different ways that other countries conduct their elections, and some barriers to voting, and of course those breaking barriers, that may surprise everyone who doesn't live there. Despite being imperfect, many people place the election process of the United States on a pedestal, but it's important to get to know the other systems that exist because democracy isn't a one-size-fits-all exact science. In fact, Winston Churchill is well known for saying, no one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried and tried from time to time. (laughs) Now, countries around the world have many different approaches to casting votes, but as you listen, don't forget that the people who cast each of those votes is doing so because they fundamentally want to take part. They want to have a voice, and they want to be contributing. For some context, for our listeners not familiar with the U.S. election system, it is complex, to say the least. Different processes are used for electing the president versus congressional officials, and some states have different processes than others for even determining the candidates who will participate in those elections. Generally, Citizens must register ahead of time with a number of identification documents, then either vote early by a validated mail-in ballot or go to the polling locations on election day. But with all the variation, U.S. elections can utilize everything from standing in corners of a room and being counted person by person to ranking preferred candidates to determine an aggregate winner to voting for other people who will then vote for the office in question. But a critical piece to all this is that the U.S. does not have compulsory voter registration or voting. By contrast, 122 other countries do have some form of required registration. Argentina and Chile, for example, which happen to be holding elections on November 14th and 21st respectively, automatically enroll voters at the proper age. In 205 countries, that proper age for voting is 18 years old, though 12 countries, again including Argentina, allow people younger than 18 to vote. In contrast, the oldest voting age is 25 years old, and that's in the UAE. Now, this is where the most interesting aspects of voting differences around the world begin to arise. In 209 countries, votes are cast by paper ballots, making this the most standard method of submitting one's votes. However, a significant problem with paper ballots, if candidates are listed in writing, is that it requires literacy. In the Gambia, where high levels of illiteracy are especially problematic in the 20th century, Placing marbles into drums as a means of demonstrating support for a candidate became the standard in the 1960s. 
the marbles are specifically cut and colored so that they cannot be easily reproducible. And the drums have bells, which prevent dropping more than one marble at a time. We'll be sure to post photos online and all of our social media if you have a hard time picturing exactly what that process looks like. Now, Gambians will vote in a presidential election on December 4th of this year, and this will again be the standard procedure for that election. Nepal is another country which struggles with low rates of literacy. The way this is a hindrance for elections is compounded by the extensive and ever-growing list of political parties that exist in the country. In 2016, there were 122 parties to choose from. That's right, 122. Instead of listing out party or candidate names in written language, Nepalese elections are conducted by leaving a stamp next to a drawn picture which represents the party that one's voting for. For example, one party is represented by a telephone, another a soccer ball, another a giraffe, and so on. Each party has its own symbolic picture, so Nepalese voters must simply remember the picture associated with the party they want to vote for. And I've actually cast a vote in Nepal. I mean, it didn't count because I'm not a citizen, but I can tell you firsthand, it's like a nightmare version of the match game. Trying to remember which picture goes with which group times 122 options it's something else. The leading parties in 2016 were represented by a hammer and sickle and a tree symbol, whereas the opposition was represented by a sun. Now, Nepal is not alone in using representative symbols in their elections. Uh, Nigeria does something similar. South Sudan is a final case in which literacy still poses a significant challenge. According to the UN, only 27% of South Sudan's population is literate, and women comprise only 12% of the educated individuals in the country. South Sudan has not yet held national elections since the 2011 referendum, which won them independence. But this is something that will need to be accounted for prior to the 2023 general elections. The South Sudanese constitution says that every citizen shall have the right to vote or be elected in accordance with this constitution and the law. And nowhere does it mention literacy test as a requirement. That might suggest they will carry out elections using a strategy similar to those that we've discussed. In the meantime, the government is attempting to make significant efforts to improve literacy rates in the country through their accelerated learning program, community girls' schools, and pastoralist education programs. Additionally, the rollout of electronic voting machines in other countries with higher concentrations of people who cannot read or write, such as India or Brazil, have been an effective strategy. Electronic machines increase voter satisfaction with ease of use and make voting simpler, faster, and more accessible to those who can't read or write. As technology continues to progress, electronic voting machines might be a viable solution for many countries with high rates of illiteracy. Unfortunately, literacy hurdles clearly are not unique to one country or another. But 
So far, they have been seen as a barrier to voting that must be creatively overcome, or at least mitigated by using some combination of pictures, stamps, marbles, or other selection methods. However, this is not the way that the United States has viewed literacy for much of its history. According to Balladopedia, a self-proclaimed encyclopedia of American politics, literacy tests were used in some form or fashion to prevent Black, Latino, Native American, and immigrant voters from casting their votes until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. These populations historically had disproportionate rates of illiteracy, so tests of reading and writing, among other purposefully discriminatory laws, effectively disenfranchised them for 177 of the 233 years America's had elections. Of course, literacy is not the only barrier to voting around the world. Biases against women, people of different religious beliefs, and different skin colors are still pervasive. Nearly every country that offers the opportunity to vote maintains exceptions or roadblocks to voting for women or minority groups. Some voters not only face process-based hurdles like registration and qualifications, but also violent suppression and intimidation. Fortunately, there are many organizations working around the globe to assist various disenfranchised groups to help give them a voice. Several of those groups will be listed in the show notes and on our website, theglobalgoodpodcast.com. You can go there to learn more and support these organizations. Now, for those who are able to vote, being marked as having voted is the last step in the process. And I do literally mean marked. In the U.S., there are a number of systems in place to ensure voters only cast one ballot, including voter rolls, audit measures, and the like. Wearing an I voted sticker out of the polling place is a badge of pride for many Americans. In other countries, the public sign of having voted and the system in place to prevent multiple votes are one and the same. Ink. That's right, like ink you think of in a pen. 28 countries currently use a substance called indelible ink, or election ink, to mark voters after they cast their votes. For example, when Nicaraguans go out to vote in their general elections on November 7th, or Hondurans on November 28th, they will all be marked with election ink. Typically, the semi-permanent ink is applied to a voter's finger, specifically covering their cuticle and fingernail. It can last for weeks at a time because it has to grow out with the fingernail. So even if elections span days or many locations, once you've been marked, you can't vote again. Because election ink lasts so long, it's really a cheap and easy way to show that someone has already cast their vote. At the heart of voting is the idea that people deserve to be heard. Voting is one way people around the world can participate in their own governance, and it's the primary way many people feel they can fight to win more freedoms or protections for themselves and others. 
While we may not all have the same process to cast a vote, whether we're dropping marbles into a bucket or feeding a paper ballot into a computer, as humans, we want to be heard. We want to count and be counted. In fact, this goes even for people who have different political desires than we do. We may disagree on who should be allowed to vote, how the elected officials should respond to voting outcomes, and which kinds of people we should be able to vote for. But all this still boils down to the common idea that we all understand. Voting gives us a voice. And wanting to be heard and understood is something all humans have in common. If you are in one of the 16 countries that have elections this time of year, remember that as you go to your place of voting, your vote matters. It really does. And send us a picture of how you vote. We want to see how you do it. Before we close, please remember to share your ideas for diversion topics or any stories you might have that relate to our episodes on diversions or people or places of interest. Email your stories to stories at theglobalgoodpodcast.com. We want to hear from you. As we have seen these last several weeks, the societal bonds that tie us together are so important in helping us stay afloat, and we're not all that different from one another, so your story is bound to connect with someone else. If you haven't already, definitely go check out our Instagram page at The Global Good Podcast and our Twitter at Global Good Pod, and keep an eye on the YouTube page, uh, youtube.com slash Podcast. We will have another interview coming out soon uh, for our first ever live show. So make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening or watching and hit that notification bell so you'll be the first to know when our new video and interviews drop. As well, we really appreciate the reviews on Apple Podcasts as those are the best way to spread the word about these exciting adventures for good. I look forward to joining all of you next week and on the next episode of the Global Good Podcast. This week's episode was researched and written by Tyler Wyckoff. I'm host Nicole Roberts with audio and video by Willpower Productions.